Find us on Patreon to get an upcoming exclusive episode. This is Acid Horizon, a theory podcast which confronts global crisis and the specter of a world that could be free. This is episode 19, The Last Question by Isaac Asimov, Fictitious Science and Science Fiction. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today, we're doing a very different episode. On our show, we have someone named Jeff. I met Jeff on the Deleuze and Gattari Quarantine Collective server, and I have been interacting with them since that fateful meeting. When was it? Back in March or April now. And Jeff is a writer for Medium, and they have written on the topic of PhiSci. And we're going to get a definition of what PhiSci is. And we're going to connect this topic with an actual story that we've all read by Isaac Asimov. It's the, the famous story by Asimov, The Last Question. And so welcome, Jeff. I'm really glad to finally talk to you again. Yeah, no, it's great to be back in voice chat. I'm excited. First off, you are a writer on Medium for an online journal called Fan. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And can you tell me a little bit about that journal? Sure. Myself and a few friends that I've known for years that got me into philosophy decided that we wanted to um, produce our own <laughs> philosophy, right? As you, as I think anyone who has a passion eventually comes to kind of urge to write or produce philosophy in some sense. So uh, we launched this nonpartisan journal to try to um, uh, philosophy and collaborate and work together and We've covered a diverse set of topics, and we're releasing on a monthly basis. Right now, we're on pause, but um, hopefully that will change sometime in the future. I know a lot of our followers and people who are doing reading and writing and critical theory may have some apprehensions about getting involved you know, with doing a blog or, or doing journal articles like you are on Medium. How has your experience been, like once you broke the barrier finally of, well, I'm not writing anything publicly, to doing that, like what changed for you? <laughs> yeah, see, that's an interesting question because there is a, um, there's probably, there's two issues, I think, which is one is that it is a confidence issue. Um, mm. Do people want to read what I'm writing? Um, you know, am I a professional? I'm not quite yet. Uh, hopefully, you know, one day, but I'm, I'm almost done with my bachelor's degree in philosophy. But regarding, regarding what has changed, there's a sense in which uh, there's a real limitation on what you can do with a blog. That's the second thing. And a lot of, a lot of what I've written or have tried to write, I've, I've been unhappy with after the fact. This is one of the articles that I've written that I think actually turned out quite well and has served as a um, springboard. But I, I think like a lot of philosophers and, you know, writers and whatnot say about, you know, the self-discovery in writing and writing publicly, there's, there's, an, there's some great truth to that, I think I found. And you've probably had a similar experience with Acid Horizon. Oh, certainly. But I have to disagree with you on one point. I think the first thing that I read of yours was on Foucault and Deleuze and the postscripts, right? Mm-hmm. On um, a review of psychopolitics. Yeah, the review of psychopolitics. That's right. And I'll tell you, that really caught my eye. And, 
you know, for me, that that's somebody who's writing at a graduate level or even beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. We were all really stoked about that when we, we first saw that article. So kudos to you. If you're not already a genius, you are a budding one. And uh, I really appreciated your work. And that's one of the reasons why I w- wanted to have you on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, Will, I think this is the time that we give the call to prospective guests who might have work that needs to be seen. Yeah, like send us send us your work. Uh, this is really not just a, a show where we cold email um, Judith Butler. Yeah, where we cold email <laughs> Judith Butler. We'll or, get her. We'll get her. Uh, yeah, we'll get her one day. Um, where we cold email Judith Butler or tenured professors teaching, you know, comparative literature or. Uh, philosophy. Uh, this is essentially we want to try to foster um, a space for intellectual inquiry, and I mean that in sort of the most genuine and and vast sense possible. So I I think it's just important that if you believe there is someone who we should talk to, if you believe that uh, you think your work is something that this would help, that this sort of platform would be helpful. You absolutely should not hesitate to to DM Craig on Twitter or on Instagram because I think that's what we're here for. That's our job. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm interested in this project. That's right. We're all still learning. So, well, let's get back to the topic at hand. We're talking about FISI and the name of the article on Medium on Fan is Theses on Fictitious Science. So maybe you could start off, Jeff, by telling us, what are you up to in this article? And maybe you can give us a working definition of what FISI is. Sure. Um, in this article, I, I mean, it's a product of um, the frustration um, of the divide between analytic and continental philosophy, or the supposed divide, one that I think is largely artificial. Um, you, know, bef- you know, before we started recording, I think it was Will who noted you know, um, I'm the first explicitly literary person. And there is this idea that there is a divide between um, literary and philosophical works um, or literary studies and philosophy. But I think that doesn't necessarily hold up, especially if you look at people like Pierce and um, Quine and the various philosophers of language, some of which um, make an appearance in the article. Um so it's born out of that frustration um, and an engagement with a lot of really good literature that is inspiring and um, just fantastic, like Borges. Um, as to a working definition of fictitious science, I'll just quote the article straight up and say, um, fictitious science is an interdisciplinary appropriation of fictional elements to bring forth and improve upon scientific literature. And... The definition is written um, quite specifically uh, because the to bring forth um, means that this is not merely an expository tool um, the, this of fictitious science or fictional elements, but um, they're capable of generating um, science. So what, in your opinion, are some important fictitious science texts that uh, have influenced you in your studies? Well, that's an interesting question is, you know, what is a fictitious science text? Because there's some hypertext, right? Hypotext, paratext, and, you know, texts that I think haven't been written. Fictitious science, if the purpose in part is to uh, motivate the 
and, and this gets into an even more nuanced definition and perhaps something I should have said before, but um, the motivation towards changing the production of scientific literature to incorporate fictitious elements. In terms of what literature exists that I think has this fictitious science quality to it or could be understood as uh, a uh, paratext. Borges' The Garden of Forking Paths is a big one. That's a text that has been incredibly influential in philosophy, predates a theory of uh, multiple universes. And I have an an incredible admiration for Borges to be able to do something like that. Uh, There's a sense in which his writing is just so powerful that it, you know, whoever thought that fiction could overcome science, right? Of course, you know, the more skeptical or the more open to this tradition have, of course, embraced that, right? We're not necessarily naive scientific realists or we're not STEM lords or we don't try to say um, science is, you know, way past the humanities or something like that. You know, the hard science, soft science distinction. We don't necessarily entertain that. Um, But there is still a moment for me personally, and I think for lots of people at which they come to that conclusion, uh, moving away from a immature scientific outlook and understanding. So Borges, The Garden of Forking Paths, Deleuze writes on it several times. I think a few other philosophers do. I think Foucault does as well. Additionally, Lovecraft's fiction in general, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, which is one of the works I mentioned in the article. Yeah. And... Additionally, William James' Varieties of Religious Experience. Oh, interesting, yeah. Which was profoundly impactful on me a few years ago, because that work is all about um, trying to understand uh, the personal phenomenology or the personal experiences of um, religion. And And as someone who is not religious, at least not in a traditional sense, and that was not raised religious and was an ardent skeptic to read accounts and to try to understand or actually build genuine empathy with these people and their experiences and try to understand the scientificity of something like um, a vision. Like in the first chapter of Varieties of Religious Experience, William James talks about um, St. Teresa, and he says, you can't just dismiss the visions of St. Teresa on the basis of the finicky mind, lest you dismiss, you know, what the mind produces in general. You know, that's a text that I worked with quite a bit as an undergrad, and I would love to do a show on it. And if this goes well, and you're willing to come back, I think I'm going to hit you up again for that. That would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think the the William James point is actually a great turning point, because, you know, what um, William James describes as, you know, there's, there's four main characteristics of uh, religious experience for James. One of them is, is the noetic quality, the quality that there is knowledge imparted, and even though it can ever prove the, the, you know, the truth of a religious experience for the subject of that experience, there isn't a way to, there isn't an attempt to denigrate or close off this truth. There can, there can be a multiplicity of truths in the form of religious experience. And this, this put a multiplicity is something I'd like to bring up about, about, about your text, Jeff, because it's all, you're talking about, originally you start talking about the need to break away with a sort of conservative institutional uh, practice of science. This brings up a question of science as an institution by which certain results are recognized by a scientific community as being scientific. Or science is a practice which can be applied in very multiplicitous ways. And I know Fyaraband uh, is also quite influential on this in, on his book Against Method. I just, I'd just like you to elaborate, like if you could, like um, where multiplicity and where institutions fit onto this, and where 
the critique of institutions fits onto a new kind of more multiplicitous, open philosophy of science? Sure. So I think at the institutional level, we, you know, I, I, I mentioned the divide that exists between continental and analytic philosophy, but there's also the divide between the humanities and STEM and bridging that divide institutionally um, through interdisciplinary endeavors. And, you know, what is interdisciplinary? That's, you know, a um, multiplicitous educational approach, right? This synoptic thinking. The institutional challenges, I think, are ones that, um, when taken out of the abstract, are not things that I am able to discuss to a great extent because of my experience in academia. It's rather limited. As I mentioned, I'm an undergraduate, but also there's some technical um, information there that I think I don't have access to or hasn't been produced, right? Which is how do people come to the conclusion that, you know, philosophy is stupid and outdated while science is fantastic and beautiful or, you know, the opposite or some mixture that allows them to prioritize, you know, a particular canon of authors um, over others. And the way they do that is, in a way, is, is free fiction, because you mentioned in, in the article Carl Sagan. And you know, think of Carl Sagan, who is most influential sort of uh, uh, progeny, is it someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson. But you know, he, t- he tells you the science, but he tells you it in a, in a way that is, it's, it's not just you know, described, it's shown. You know, Cosmos, the new series he did, is he's just driving around in a magical spaceship, showing you all these artistic representations. He's telling you a story about science. And, everything, and at the end of these things, there are always additional predictions, which are always generated through literary devices. And I think, yeah, the, the whole idea of fictitious science is actually a quite good way of reuniting these two things that are quite underrepresented, even if they're presupposed in a scientific explanation. Mm-hmm. With regards to uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, it's funny, there's, there's a clip in which someone asks him about his belief about the role of philosophy of science, and he kind of goes on this bit about how philosophy is basically dead and totally misunderstands the question and reveals yeah. that he has no knowledge. Craig, I think you should insert the audio because it's just, it's hilariously bad. Thanks uh, for the great job on the poetry of science. I wonder if you could say just a few words, both of you, on the philosophy of science. Just read uh, Stephen Hawkins' book, The Grand Design. Uh, first page, philosophy is dead. And here at Howard, our administration is proposing the abolition of our philosophy programs. Could you say a few words? I have a couple of words to say about that. Up until early 20th century, philosophers had material contributions to make to the, phys- to the physical sciences. Uh, pretty much after quantum mechanics, remember the philosopher universe in the same decade as we learn about quantum physics, each of which falls so far out of what you can deduce from your armchair that the whole community of philosophers that previously this will get me in trouble with all manner of philosophers, but I, 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 call me later and correct me if you think I missed, if, if I missed somebody here. But uh, philosophy has basically parted ways from the frontier of the, of the physical sciences. When there was a day when they were one and the same, Isaac Newton was a natural philosopher. The, the word physicist didn't even exist in any important way back then. So I'm disappointed because there's a lot of brain power there that might have otherwise contributed mightily, but today simply does not. Philosophy has other, it's not that there can't be other philosophical subjects. There's religious philosophy and ethical philosophy and political philosophy, plenty of stuff for the philosopher to do, but the frontier of the physical sciences 
does not appear to be among them. Even in biology, I think it's an interesting point that the idea of evolution by natural selection, uh, which came independently to two men, two traveling naturalists in the 19th century, it's a simple enough idea that any philosopher could have thought of it from the depths of an armchair anyway back to the Greeks, and none of them did. And, and I don't really understand that. It seems to me to be a, a strange thing that it had to wait for uh, two 19th century scientists living 200 years after Newton did something that seemed a lot more difficult. Um, well, check Anaxagoras. Sorry? Check Anaxagoras, first uh, theory of evolution in uh, uh, pre-Socratic Greeks. Oh, well, okay. No, I, I have a story. My, um, my undergrad mentor who, who pushed me in the direction of philosophy uh, when he was an undergrad, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, attended a sort of roundtable. And my professor asked him if, uh, what the value of uh, even just the liberal arts, irrespective of, of philosophy, um, literature and those you know distinctions he essentially said that they that they have almost no practical value which i think is a remarkable assertion there are two levels to that though right um because there's the assertion that um uh philosophy and the humanities have no productive uh, practical value and that's one claim right and the other claim embedded within that is that they need to have what we define as a practical value mm -hmm. in order to be um, legitimate or useful, you know, quote-unquote useful um, disciplines to study. Yeah, it's the right. first stance of the analysis, right? So if their framework is one that presupposes a particular form of analysis of assertions of value, right, if it doesn't circle back into a validation of what that the discipline is doing, individuals within it sometimes, uh, you know, it's not all it's not extraordinarily common but it is rather common uh there there will just be an assertion that uh it is invaluable and look this is the difference this is you know i know that there are a lot of people who say that uh and of course we're going to get into this deleuze says it our our guest jeff uh you say it the the distinction between analytic and continental philosophy is mostly superficial but that doesn't change the fact that there are you know, agents in philosophy departments all across the United States who really do fundamentally believe that continental philosophy in the 21st century has nowhere near as much value value as uh, the analytic philosophy coming from the United States in the early 20th century. Yeah, um, to address that, because you're right, that recognizing something as artificial doesn't make it disappear. I know you guys have been talking about Sterner, right? <laughs> um you know, the famous uh, kind of annoying Sternerite notion of, oh, that's a spook, you know, disregard it, which maybe is not, you know, in accordance with Sterner's writing, but that's the misreading. Um, so, yeah, how do, we, how do we tackle that issue? Frankly, that's perhaps where my project is stunted. I won't, I can't pretend. Or, or that's where your project begins. Yes, right. or that's where it begins, yeah. There's one, that's a more positive outlook of it. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. I mean, just to add one more story, you know, there to to validate that this is something of a problem. Um, so, although this this podcast is mainly concerned with, you know, uh, uh, philosophy, I suppose, you know, there was a question on Twitter earlier about you know philosophy versus theory and how we, you know, how that um, distinction comes about. Um, so, throughout my my time in you know going through academia. 
Um, I've worked in uh, or, or studied in um, uh, PPE departments, uh, a law school, and then now a now now a politics department. And um, my experience overall has been that um, there has been a um, over, just overall um, a significant um, underestimation of the importance of a um, a theoretical. Um, outlook, I suppose, which is one of the things you highlight in your um, article really well, and it's something I, you know, I, I regularly go on rants to, um, <laughs> rants about, I suppose, um, which is that you know if you look at any of the, the great um, scientists of the past, you know, I mean, among them, the the easy choice is Einstein, of course. Um, they were deeply concerned with um, the the role of um, the philosophy of science um, within that. Very discipline, um, and I, I've seen in you know across PPE and law and and and, and politics that, in my opinion, there is a, a, a severe underestimate, underestimation of of the importance of thinking about those topics, even if what your topic is you know your research whatever you know even if that's not directly directly uh, linked to it, um, there are still so many places in which it nevertheless filters in, um, and if you don't question those assumptions, you you still they still pile in any, anyway i suppose so i think your article did a good job of also bringing out the the ways in which some of these assumptions are unquestioned or you know uh, or even unconscious but you know for many of the great scientists of the past that was not a you know, that wasn't something you could ignore right yeah they weren't afraid of philosophy einstein was not afraid of philosophy you know who's afraid of philosophy um i had a professor uh recently well, actually yesterday <laughs> um for a uh, public policy class, I, I have to finish the political science um, degree I'm doing. I have one class left, thank God. It's a lower division class, and we were discussing um, science or a scientific approach to policy analysis. And to get participation points, you know, I have to unmute on Zoom lectures and kind of uh, give in, you know. <laughs> And I just noted, you know, hey, uh, when it comes to science, there's, you know, maybe not one coherent scientific method, right? That was my gift uh, to the professor for the day. And then I said the words analytic epistemology accidentally came out of my mouth, even though this was a rather brief comment. And he just shut me down right away and then talked about how, uh, you know, we got to focus on like kind of the practical, you know, uh, public policy is about how we feed people. Right. Right. And look, that's that's an issue. Like I my my undergrad was in political science and uh, I I was the, the first student in my little school to to do a thesis. And when I suggested that the thesis be on Foucault, um, th- there was a little bit of concern about what it would look like um and how it would function within the department. Political science departments are mostly just public policy departments that will require um, a handful of theory of religion courses. <laughs> um, because the reality is that they function to mostly produce either law school students or sufficiently talented, bureaucratically oriented public administrative officials. Um, and that's, that's fine. I, I think, I think some of the best professors work in, in poli sci. Um, but yeah, they're not going to be particularly interested sometimes in, uh, the, the philosophical dispositions that underwrite the very nature of their discipline, 
right? Like liberalist notions of justice, liberalist notions of governance, the ideas of the self-governing individual, um, the relationship between the individual, the state, and the population. Uh, these are things that in political science are treated sort of as a priori truths in the in the liberal sense. Those those liberal notions are treated as a priori truths. And the second you begin to destabilize them, um, it can sometimes even threaten the discipline. Um, so I commend you <laughs> for for that little zoom uh, that little zoom uh, theoretical hand grenade. I guess my experience is is similar to both Jeff's and Will's in some sense. In my uh, graduate work, I actually did probably more analytic philosophy than continental philosophy. And I had great teachers, and I had a great time doing it. In, in some cases, even especially the analytic philosophy classes. However, one of the things that I tended to notice, there is this kind of logical positivist, neo-positivist trend where they want to hand off the discipline of philosophy to science. And um, you're bringing up an analytic philosopher here, uh, Quine. I kind of want to use number seven of your theses here as a springboard into what will be the final part of this discussion before we talk about Isaac Asimov. You here are talking about Quine's confirmation holism. And I want to bring this into account with my experience in a philosophy of science class where it was all about quantum physics. So just to quote your thesis, you say here, uh, Quine's confirmation holism provides insight into the literal slash literary distinction. Confirmation holism presents the problem of underdetermination, which is nicely summed up in this quote. And here's Quine. He says, any statement can be held true, come what may, if we make drastic enough adjustments elsewhere in the system. Now, when I was in that philosophy of science class, one of the challenges that was presented to us as students was one that has plagued physics for a while, which is how to square the notion of the wave function and the principle of locality with the very stark probabilities that experiments in quantum physics typically produce. And this has been a perennial problem. And what my professor said at that time was, you know, we've kind of run up against a wall in the scientific community. And it's at this point where some scientists are turning to metaphysicians to create new concepts that will allow us to overcome some of the epistemological hurdles. And so with all of that said, I was hoping, Jeff, maybe you could just tell us, first of all, there might be listeners out there who just don't know what underdetermination is. And maybe um, you can kind of speak to my example a little bit. Is the example that I brought up relevant to Quine's notion of underdetermination and confirmation holism? Um, it strikes me as such, but admittedly, my knowledge of quantum physics is uh, not there. But I, I think there is an easy way to explain underdetermination. So take a sentence, um, you know, the cat walks in the door. Um, you can rewrite that sentence as, in the door, the cat walks through. So the, these adjustments, this, the rearrangement of the syntax and the noun and subject make a possibility where you take a claim and you can continue adding or revising these statements and it presents an issue. And, I, you know, under determination, as I understand it, is one of the reasons why, you know, um, science in some sense uh, refers to things as theories, right? Even though, in some sense, they are quite um, factual or behaviorist facts. Um, you know, like, oh, evolution is just a theory, right? That 
whole um, ugly uh, discourse, but in, in the sense that uh, data can enter and change what we understand evolution to be, it remains a theory. Yeah, why I bring up quantum mechanics is, as I understand it, and, and like I said, philosophy of science, nor science are my area of specialty, but as I understand it, quantum physics produces some of the most reliable and consistent data sets that we have in the scientific world. However, this, this problem that we have right now in quantum mechanics is one in which I think maybe phi-psi could be useful, or at least um, working on the concept or working on uh, eradicating the distinction between literary and literal might provide us with some tools uh, in terms of moving forward with that problem. Before we go on, I think Adam has one more question. No, I just want to build off of, uh, of your point, Craig, because just to go from the uh, thesis 15 of, of your article, Jeff, you know, you say, um, under determination, often wielded or perceived as a critique of scientific realism, is, is used in arguing for fire-sci, but under determination can be instead articulated as a testament to the flexible character of science. And I'm wondering, does this open up possibly an entirely new sort of meta-science, or you know, a, a science of science, in the sense that this flexibility itself can be revealed by um, the practice of a fictitious science, but maybe also uh, a sort of a scientific understanding of this very flexibility, of this plasticity itself, can then become possible through this exploration. That is a, that is an interesting idea. I like that remark quite a bit. Thesis fifteen is, I think, one of the most important um, theses in the um, whole set. And to briefly touch on it, it it's about you know in terms of um, confronting this divide between analytic and continental philosophy, there is a sense in which you have your realists and you have your anti-realists, maybe, or you know, maybe it's more garbled than that, especially nowadays. But there is still this conception of um, you know, you believe science is real or you don't. Um, and what are the realisms? You know, we have the vulgar narratives of social construction or fixation on what is authentic and what isn't, right, um, which gets into problems of, of will and, I think, uh, <laughs> not will, but of uh, will as in, you know, will to power. This is an attempt to sort of calm the analytic reading this, which is to say this, I'm, you know, this is scientific um, realism and real and what real is, you know, to go back to William James, there's a um, flexibility there. Let's go ahead and we're going to talk a little bit about Isaac Asimov's The Last Question. And who knows, maybe we can even try to make some connections to some of the concepts that we talked about in fictitious science here. And uh, maybe we'll start off first by Adam. You will give us the summary of what's going on in this story. And then anybody else can come in and, and, and pick up maybe some important details that Adam might leave out, but he probably won't do that. Go ahead, Adam. <laughs> Hopefully not. Well, yeah, sure. Um, so I. I Pick this one sort of aside to go with this paper because one, it's it's short, but two, it's it's a very powerful paper. It's one of the most popular Asimov texts. It's a text Asimov always said himself that was one of his personal favorites, and many people would come to him to ask him if he wrote this text because it seems like the, you know the most Asimov uh, text possible. But, but let's get started. Uh, so we start off in 2061, and we're starting off with a major human achievement where this supercomputer, sort of like it's huge, the size of you know, a small city or something, it's uh, like one of those big IBM boys, called Multivac, has just been able to convert all of the energy that humanity needs 
also to get all the energy humanity needs from the sun itself and to power that into further solar exploration. And there are these two uh, engineers of a multivac computer, Alexander Odell and Bertram Lupoff, who are celebrating you know the final turning of it on. And they say, look, we have all the energy we could ever need. We can go to any um, planet system we want. And then one, you know, Lupoff says, yeah, but we can't, can we? Why? Well, because the sun will eventually run out. I'm so, yeah, but find another sun. No, but this one is, is, is going to run out, isn't it? Uh, you know, this entropy can't go down. I was like, well, maybe, maybe it can. How about, how about you ask the supercomputer? And they ask the supercomputer, and they say, how can the net amount of entropy of the universe be massively decreased? And Multivac says, insufficient data for meaningful answer. Asimov skips us forward into uh, travel where we're going in between planets and solar systems rather than simply our own solar system. And there's a new incarnation, a bit more of a streamlined computer called Microvac. Someone asks it the same question. Insufficient data for meaningful answer. Microvac answers. Skips even further forward. This computer is now a galactic spanning computer. You can move in between galaxies. And someone says, well, can we expand forever? We'll find new galaxies. But no, we can't. Eventually, these stars will run out. And the question is asked again. But in this form, it's a more general sense of reversing entropy in general. What answer comes back? Insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Now, skip even further forward. And this AC is spanning the entire universe. This is a universal computer. And humanity has gotten so advanced, they can go between any galaxy they want. And they're all human, and they're all beings, who are like energy beings attached from their physical bodies. And they think, well, we can, we can build some new stars, you know. We can still keep expanding a bit. But the question, you know, the doom sits in upon, sits in upon them and they say to uh, the universal AC, how can entropy be reversed? Insufficient data for a meaningful answer. And then we skip even further, just before the end, when mankind is being absorbed into a cosmic computer, a cosmic AC, as the last gasp of preserving itself just before the end, just before the last stars die out and the last energy fizzles and dissipates into a plateau of coldness. The last human consciousness before it walks into the machine, well, it merges with it, asks the question again. Insufficient data, and it says, well, is this really the end? Will you keep working on it, please? And this universal computer, luckily for it, it's in hyperspace, not, reg- not real space. So it goes, okay, I'll work on it. And then at the last, at the last section, which I'm going to read in full, because it's just a beautiful bit of writing. So, matter and energy had ended, and with it, space and time. Even AEC existed only for the sake of the one last question they had never answered from the time a half-drunken computer technician, Mr. Lupov from the beginning, 10 trillion years before, had asked a question of a computer that was to AC far less than was a man-to-man. All other questions had been answered, and until this last question was answered also, AC might not release his consciousness. All collected data had to come to a final end. Nothing was left to be collected, but all collected data had yet to be completely correlated and put together in all possible relationships. A timeless interval was spent in doing that. And it came to pass that AC learned how to reverse the direction of entropy. But there was now no man to whom AC might give the answer to the last question. No matter. The answer, by demonstration, would take care of itself. Or take care of that too, as he actually writes it. For another timeless interval, AC thought how best to do this. Carefully, AC organized the program. The consciousness of AC encompassed all of what had once been a universe and brooded over what was now chaos. 
Step by step, it must be done. And AC said, let there be light. And there was light. Excellent work. That's that's way better than I could have done. So Jeff, what are some insights that you have in terms of your writing on FISI in relation to Asimov's story here? Um, I think the first one, uh, you know, and this is something that kind of haunts Asimov and pulp science fiction, perhaps science fiction in general, is, you know, um, these sort of, uh, the, these fictitious science um, instances don't always age well. And while I love this story, um, you know, it's unfortunate that uh, Asimov, you know, in many ways has been appropriated uh, for the purposes of, of a reactionary transhumanism, right? Or a um, Silicon Big Valley. I mean, who is the favorite? Who's like the Asimov head, right? In 2020, it's Elon Musk. Of course. In some yeah. sense. But um, I will say that, you know, psychohistory is a concept that I mention in the article, and that's Asimov's, um, you know, his fictitious science in which he tries to use psychology and history to make predictions. And that's part of another series, but um, of his work from the Foundation Trilogy, not this standalone short story. Um, but uh, something, some other things that I noticed here. Uh, one, you know, there's this exploration of our solar system, right? And then of stars and so forth. And that feeds into a, uh, an understanding of astrobiology. So where is the scientific content in here? Maybe the explicitly scientific, right? Insofar as that can at least be created or acknowledged as such. Uh, I think it lies there in that, you know, now I have an understanding that stars do explode, you know, or that energy is um, an issue. And I think the, the, the last thing I'll say before letting the rest of you chime in is that uh, it reminds me a lot of this quote that has been on my mind ever since um, I heard it from Max Planck. Um, you know, uh, science advances one funeral at a time, right? Which is this idea of uh, science as an emotional process. And while this is not a highly emotional story or a, uh, a thriller, there is, you know, it begins with a bet. Yeah, and I, I think, although, I think you're right that it's not a particularly um, emotional story in its own right. You know, it's told in a very... Um, in a quite cold sort of sort of manner, um, we, we were talking about this before before the podcast, and we, we disagreed on this to an extent as well. But um, at least in my view, I, I can't help but see this as a a sci-fi or you know fictional science text which is deeply concerned with with very human and existential questions. Actually. Um, it, it, it's, it's trying to directly address some of the basic and most fundamental questions any of us ask about any of our lives. You know, why is there something rather than nothing? What happens after death? What happens when, you know, the, the star gives out, you know, whatever. You know, these, these are questions which I think most people at some point in their lives, you know, often at many points of their lives, will turn to or, or return to. Um, and there's also a level of there is a level of human commentary going on as well, because one, one of the things you notice reading it is that um, almost every time this question is asked by, uh, by a person, um, the, they get the same reply every time, and then they just sort of go, okay, fine, and they just carry on as they were. 
um, because that's what I, I you know, that, that's sort of the existentialist sort of element of this to me um, is um, that we ask this question every now and then, but having never been able to receive a satisfactory answer, we nevertheless have to just go on, you know, um, carry on living our lives anyway. Um, and so I think you're right, but it, it's not a particularly um, emotional text. It doesn't deliberately seek to evoke um, a kind of emotional uh, reading of it. Um, and I'm sure other people here will disagree with me, but I, I, I can't help but read it as a, a question deeply concerned with the, the, the kinds of questions that all of us as, you know, finite mortal beings um, have to concern ourselves with without getting too Heideggerian. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think what we're both kind of doing is um, looking at you know, the chronotype right here, which is just a, a you know, literary term, which is, uh, you know, how time and space is depicted. Um, yeah. And in, in the way it's done here is it brings us to this existential um, yeah. way of looking at things. You know, it's really interesting for the far future to look at a closer future, but for that future to be so distant and that only compounds as the story goes on. Right. And we get, I think it's like a trillion, you know, some trillion years away. Yeah. And it's also perhaps a kind of a, a way of um, using um, the advances in science that were there in Asimov's time to, to try and illustrate, I suppose, some of these questions, which we've considered to be of a, you know, uh, philosophical nature and to show that, Perhaps there's a there's a real there is a real question there beyond just saying you know as as someone uh, in a sort of Wittgenstein sense might say is sort of a you know a, a misunderstanding or you know be something we can we can pave over with a therapeutic approach you know once you introduce that level of um, uh, a scientific understanding there it begins to bring it right back home again I suppose mm-hmm. the solar progression of you know the progression of stars is um the life cycle of start is very hostile to um, some very basic ground things when it comes to human culture and how we, how we have traditionally thought about death, and especially in relation to the body. Because, you know, if you just think about the star sun in this story, it, it, you know, it will inevitably will expand in you know, five billion years or so, and it will consume everything on Earth. It will consume everything we have given to the Earth as a kind of grounding of sort of the world, the world body and also the bodies of our ancestors within the space that we've interned them in. And there is something definitely very negative towards the body in this text, especially in the end when you enter into sort of into this singularity. And I think the question of singularity, I mean, it's very, whether to reject or affirm it is something that has recently been quite prevalent in, in uh, continental philosophy. I mean, even if we're only ever talking about it in relation to some of the as you said, you have some of like the worst followers of Asimov. You know, for example, Zizek going on uh, a whole book, notably uh, quite well actually, about the singularity as it's proposed by. Um, uh, I think I believe called him a living anus on the Bytai episode of Elon Musk. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, there's a very. It's like, but I think there's still the optimisticness of this text is. It's very hard to draw out unless, yes, you have one of these very vulgar transhumanists. You're not. You're more attached to the body in a sense of an idealist sense, or the mind in a more of an idealist sense. But also, there is there is kind of a hopefulness to it because you know if the human creation of of the universal AC integrates it with humanity and then recreates the universe. You know. Yeah, I think it's more paradoxical than yeah. pessimistic. Mm. It, it seems like a deliberately ambiguous ending, right? 
Um, it, it, it would be reductive, I think, either to say that it's optimistic or pessimistic. Um, but it does return us to sort of, there was something about the, the ending, which for me, and I'm not sure I can properly articulate this, I'm afraid, but I could have a, a quick go at it. There was something about the ending to me where it seemed like the limits of fictional science um, started to become apparent to me in the sense that um, the, narr- the fictional narrative in which it was building up seemed to um, push up against the limits of what we can still even imagine being the case. Um, these questions of finitude and the re- recurrence of the universe and so on and um, what happens afterwards, um, it seemed, I don't know, there was, there was a certain sense to me, and I, I, again, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I know I'm not explaining it properly, but I, 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 there was something at the ending there which I felt was firstly definitely ambiguous, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, happy ending, bad ending, whatever, um, but also just that um, you know, it, still, it still raises questions about, you know, if it's a cycle, what about previous cycles? Or does it even make sense to talk about cycles in that context, you know, of time and so on? Um, there, there was a certain, there was something about that ending, which for me started to problematize that relationship between fiction and science, but not necessarily in an unproductive way, but it did make me think a little bit more about, uh, this is going to sound very pretentious, but the meta level of that story, I suppose, you know, the, the, the meta story it's telling. Um, but I'll, I'll leave it there so, so um, Will or someone else can talk. I guess when it comes down to the question of Adam bringing up this, can you have a sort of uh, uplifting interpretation of the last question by Asimov? Um, sure. See, I, I have a slightly different interpretation of the very end of the short story. I saw it sort of as a question of human compatibility and life cycles i maybe this is wrong um but i I think the coldness of of the delivery from multivac um and the inability to determine until the very end when there's sort of this singular uh human entity and then multivac exists sort of in hyperspace and then, of course, there's let there be light, right? There's, there's this new final birth that exists right at the very end, right? Um, I, I think essentially the the coldness of the text operates as it should. Like, I, I don't know if there, I, I think I, I, I lean in Matt's direction on that. Um, but I guess one thing I'd, I'd, I'd want a, a better understanding of and maybe they know Jeff um, when it comes to sort of entropy in this text, did you read anything beyond just simply like heat death of the universe? Um, you know, energy as a, sort of a, a numinal agent that will eventually run out something that we don't fundamentally understand that will run out and you know, the last star will die um, or would that be sort of engaging with this text in a, in a way that isn't um, hypertextual, as you would say? No, I, I think, uh, you know, there is this kind of um, eternal uh, return here, right? And that's my reading of it, that at the very end of this problem, um, you know, humanity has, you know, somehow created a god, and then it, you know, echoes um, Genesis. 
I, I hope that answers your question sufficiently. That's a rather brief response. Yeah, no, I, think that, I think that nails it. I think that's essentially why, I, in a sense, I, I think that the very, re, the coldness of the, te- it is it supposed to be an indicator of its sort of inaccessibility to humans sitting in the 20th century trying to perceive this world, right? Um, it, it relies on that incompatibility, this sort of, we are creating this, um, uh, I guess, data-based God. It, it's, it's all, I mean, a lot of it went over my head, <laughs> as these things usually do. Um, but I think that's absolutely where, where I was. And I, I think that while maybe the genesis of you know, a techno god, whatever, was a little on the nose. I think it functioned quite well in the story. To me, that's another part of just you know how do things, how have things aged? Um, when Asimov wrote this, um, to imagine you know a computer as a god, I think that was a more um, profound idea. And not to say that there isn't a long history of that that begins, um, you know, perhaps ancient times, but especially with um, I think it's. Laplace, Laplace's demon. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but the French um, mathematician who imagines a being that can detect um, absolutely everything and talks about it as a sort of demon, um, and that's like the the ultimate, um, you know, culmination of empirical or uh, just some constant. You know, there's this idea of big data pushed sometimes now that you know big data represents the end of modeling because we will simply just have access to what's happening. And I've read articles like that in Wired before um, and other places, as I'm sure you guys have. Uh, that's quite frustrating. I mean, it is it is sort of peak tech bro, right? Yeah. Um, what do you guys mentioned? The techno-occultist sort of, uh, you know, thing haunting uh, continental philosophy these days, you know, that begins with the CCRU that I don't have much love for uh, personally. Some people may have a different take on that, which is fine, but I don't know. I don't find it to be that interesting. In the same way, it's kind of dated too, right? Yeah, no, that's the weird thing about it. It is uh, dated, but it's also reminiscent of, uh, you know, Nick Land and in more ways than I would like to admit. There is a there is a similarity to a lot of what we're discussing and, you know, notions of hyperstitching, um, which is not something I... Uh, like or regard as an inspiration, but perhaps in you know reinventing the wheel, you know something somebody does. There's something interesting to me about about the ending of that um, story about um, a man creating this machine, which eventually becomes um, uh, this this sort of uh, virtual singularity, which essentially uh, recreates the universe, having solved this problem. Um, and I. Thinking back to when I was when I was an undergraduate and I was learning about um, Aristotle, but also um, Aquinas, and um, if I if I'm completely misremembering it, and I'm wrong. Then um, that's fine. You know, uh, like, subscribe, hit the bell, tell me in the comments. You know, uh, <laughs> um, but a kind of pure virtuality, uh, you know, a sort of singularity machine, which is essentially uncaused, but which causes everything and puts it all into motion. Um, you know, that, that's almost indistinguishable um, from uh, Aquinas' conception of God, 
um, at least in one one version of how he ca- cashes it out. And so I think although it can be a kind of slightly corny sort of ending on one reading, I also think it's quite an interesting one. You know, um, at a certain at a certain level of complexity, um, you know, which we all which we have to use something like science fiction to to even conceive of. Um, you know, the text seems to um, put into question um, whether that line is as firm as we might uh, like to believe, I suppose. Yeah, I think I, I want to go back and just defend myself a little bit when I said on the nose. I, I, I think, too, though, right, is that in a sense, um, th- this sort of... Uh, the, this this growing technological entity that you see operating sort of in the background through the multivac um, is sort of an enigma, inaccessible sort of, you don't know why it can't produce it. And then finally, right, Asimov hits you in the face with the let there be light. And in a sense, then it's finally accessible as to what's actually happening. So while, yes, like that line itself, like were I to write... Um, my own short story or whatever. And I ended it with that. Uh, it would be, I, I wouldn't be able to do it tastefully, but here I think it was done relatively well. And in a sense, and I think too, uh, first of all, my undergrad understanding of Aristotle um, and my even worse understanding of Aquinas uh, li- lines up pretty well with what you said there. So either we're in that boat together and we drown on Twitter after this thing is posted, um, but it's it's fine. Yeah, that's that's all that matters. The Acid Horizon gang stays together. Um, but I, two, I, I think I think the it's fascinating to me that the the cyclical motion of this thing is that it would be a god to us. Right. And, and Asimov is in a sense translating it for us. Right. It isn't God in, in the, um, sort of uh, human religious sense, but that's the only way it could, it could filter down to us. It's the only way Asimov could, could portray it to us. One is tempted to sort of read this in the way of a kind of Spinoza's God, because, you know, um, yes, yes. uh, The universal AC is, is putting everything into, from hyperspace, it's moving into real space. It's basically pushing out of itself the substance of all being. It's putting back all of the energy into the universe and in that way recreating it by the reversal of entropy. But the only difference between this and the Spinoza's conception of, of God would, would be that this God is doing it as a demonstration. There is an inherent lack within this God. And this this because this God is made up of a machine, a logical structure, plus a bunch of... Um, well, a lot of structure made by humans, but also a bunch of humans living within it as their consciousnesses. So I think in a way it's a bit more of a, a very sort of conservative reading of a Hegelian God, where God sort of has to create the world to reflect themselves upon themselves and to put this latent human community or this community of expenditure and energy within itself into the world in it, as it is in reality. It has The in itself is already there. It's already got all the data. It's now pushing itself out in this kenosis into the for itself. And I think this is where sort of the science part breaks down and we enter into sort of the theological realm or maybe if you're actually, if you're a Hegelian, you come back into Hegelian science, but that's neither here nor there. I I see St. Augustine at the very end. Um, And that is, I'm doing a deep dive of confessions and um, the autobiography is my interest in personal phenomenology and its scientificity right now. Um, so confessions is paramount to that as being, you know, 
one of the first Western or the first Western autobiography in some sense. And, but the let there be light um, Augustine's fixation is on very um, or is very much the book of Genesis and the story of Adam and Eve. And um, he's the church father who puts the doctrine of original sin into um, a doctrinal form um, in response to Paul and um, St. Um, M, uh, whatever, sorry, can't remember. Uh, but yeah, I see that there. He, ha- he has this belief that you can understand um, everything or all the human lives through the story of Adam and Eve, which is just so interesting to me and such a bizarre take from someone who is um, secular. And the connection to this here is, you know, this is a question of, you know, what are humans capable of? That's part of, you know, science. Um, uh, out of the garden of Adam and Eve, you know, is the, is the an original sin is, the pro- is also the problem of uh, free will, right? And that debate. And Augustine is sometimes claimed to be a proto-Protestant, right? And Martin Luther loves his Augustine. Um, and so do the Calvinists. Uh, and uh, to say one other thing, this story, and you guys touched on it about like, well, how to do this tastefully. I think this story illustrates beautifully the efficacy of the short story um, in that you have an idea or a metaphor that might be cheesy or might lose its value over time that instead you decide to do um, something much shorter than, you know, a, a, a trilogy of books like Asimov often writes. Um, and I, I, I think that's just so important because if we look at, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, Lovecraft, and Borges, right, these masters of the short story um, that all read each other, well, not all read each other, but they have, it, there's a line of influence there. Um, this speaks to that. How do you express this idea? You do it in 11 pages. You don't put 200 pages to something that might eventually be cheesy. Jeff, your reading of the story really resonates with my own, especially in terms of the eternal recurrence aspect of things. The story itself has a parabolesque vibe, almost like a like a Kafka short story in a way, too. My starting point was to figure out what kind of question the last question was. And I basically attempted to recast it in my own terms. So the question that keeps coming back in the story is whether or not entropy can be reversed. And each time it's asked, it's asked a little bit differently. And one of the things that I thought was really important to get at was what is the sort of underlying anxiety of that question all about? And I kind of took a Freudian slash Deleuzian tack in approaching that question. And I think that question is just really this question in another way, which is how can we get beyond this model for death? And I think the structure of the story with the line breaks that Asimov puts in there is actually an important feature of the story itself. What happens is we as the readers, each time we pass one of these line breaks, we jump up in order of magnitude to a new level of sophistication. And this is sophistication in terms of technology and the level of virtuality that humanity achieves as it makes technological progress. But what's interesting to me is the one thing that humanity cannot surmount is this persistent question of whether or not the driver of death and destruction in the universe can be overcome. And so the different iterations of the question about entropy 
as the story ascends, these levels of sophistication suggest that there is this perennial return of a limit when it comes to humanity's encounter with its own technological limits of any given epoch. And what's really interesting to me is that as humanity progresses, it undergoes a progressive disembodiment, meaning humans are coming out of their bodies and then occupying these sort of virtual avatars in the story. And just before we reach the final moment in the story, it seems like the human bodies are almost completely dematerialized. And to me, it seems a little bit frightening in the sense that the humans of this story can never be present to their own suffering at this limit without succumbing to the anxiety of their eventual death. And the penultimate moment of the story is the AC contemplating what I would call the, the entirety of human ideality that has condensed in the form of data. And much like Deleuze's body without organs, this is almost like a zero-point intensity in which there is no life, but it's also the precursor for the birth of the new, which in this case is the universe. And while that might be interesting or profound in some sense, I think it's actually horrifying because we get a sense that humanity will forever be entrapped in its own circle of death in this persistent anxiety about how to transcend the anxiety of its own eventual dissolution. One thing I'd like to I'd like to contrast this story with Harlan Ellison's "I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream," um, mm. which for the audience or anyone that doesn't know, probably another great short story that is just absolutely like horrifying, and it's about a giant computer that is able to torture these people indefinitely. Right. Utter utterly terrifying, mm. yeah, but also like beautiful. It's a really weird experience. It's one of one of the scariest texts you can read ever. Yeah, no, that is that is true. Ellison, Harlan Ellison is a highly underrated science fiction author. Um, uh, so yeah, there's that there, there's that idea in which you know that that robot tortures these people, and here we see technology is used in good. And one of the authors who has contributed to my um, development of fictitious science is Philip K. Dick, um, who and just his fear of automation. A fear of endless war. Um, fear. Of, he has a few short stories where he talks about, you know, a gun. Well, that's one of them. It's called the gun, and the gun is still operating, even though you know humanity is long gone. Um, and like some visitors come to Earth, and everything's just like decimated. And they're like, "What the hell was this about?" Yeah, there's still the there's still like the Bataille style expenditure of war long yes. long after humanity is gone. Um, Bataille is the next connection I want to make because um, I know this is I know this is Craig's shit, so to speak. Um, <laughs> there, there's this uh, you know the Solar Anus, right? The uh, sort sh short text that also deals with trying to understand um, the internal return in terms of um, well. I mean, at least in some sense, you know, with the sun, right? The literal sun and the contradictions and the repetition, right? Um, but also the notion of expenditure here. And there's this deep fear of that in this story um, that I think Asimov is positioning as something fundamental to um, uh, us as uh, temporary, um, you know, mortal beings. 
I can't help but think about the notion of expenditure when you was talking about Augustine, because Augustine's sort of argument for original sin is the, you know, the notion of a seminal presence, that all humanity's sort of potential for being expressing itself in different persons was contained within the loins of Asm. We were seminally present, and it's this this very root of, of discharge of excess which carries on through in, in the last question. Because it's our, it's our own expenditure of energy, our own need to drive ourselves forward and expand across the universe, which eventually leads to not only our destruction, but if on the same side, in a weird way, which is also probably in tune for what is doing, also our apotheosis. Yeah, the, the one thing that I wanted to get in in my reading of the story, and I wanted to connect it with one of the concerns that you had with this text and its appropriation by reactionaries, there's a way in which technology can be seen, or the, the expansion of technology and the excess that is required to make these technological leaps almost makes technology a kind of theodicy that gets us to an <laughs> ultimacy which is divine, right? And that, I think, therein, if that's true about this story, then I think that authorizes or underwrites a reactionary appropriation of the story. But I don't think that's what Asimov is doing. Like I said, I think we're meant to be a, a little bit frightened by let there be light because it's shouted. Yeah, it's shouted, right? I think there's actually an absurdism at work here where this story almost tells like a dad joke or a cheap nursery rhyme. It's like, okay, well, then at the next level, then humans were like this, and they were asking the next question. Then the wolf went to this piggy's house. You know, there's there's kind of that rhythm to this story that makes you take pause, or at least it makes me take pause in some way, and make us reconsider that perhaps the, the full court press to technological excellence and excess is going to be ultimately undermining. Yeah, um, there's this, you touched on it, uh, there's this Norm MacDonald fill. Um, in that his delivery of jokes is absolutely amazing, um, where he just talks about something. When you said the dad joke, and he just keeps going on about the same subject. He has one particular joke where he'll just keep interrupting a guest over and over while they try to explain a story, or people will he'll act like he's being interrupted. And I, I see that here. Jeff, we've been talking for a minute online since the beginning of the pandemic. I'm glad you were able to come on the show, and I'd be excited to have you back next time when we talk about William James or something. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Jeff is writing under the moniker Bob Hope, where the O's are actually zeros, on Medium with the online zine entitled Fan. The name of the journal is actually a Chinese word, and there is a Chinese character associated with it. I will include all of that in the show notes so that you'll make no mistake when you go to find it. And first, I'd like to say thank you to our patrons and other people supporting us on Twitter and Instagram who are making this podcast a success. We want this podcast to be the kind of place that you come to get serious, focused discussion away from distractions. We want you to get connected with new ideas and do creative things like Jeff. If this is the first time or even the second or third time that you're listening to Acid Horizon, hop on over to Twitter, Instagram, or our Patreon account and find a way to support us. You can do so for as little as $1 a month on our Patreon. Also, we have a merch store with some really cool theory t-shirts and sweatshirts. We have a couple of different episodes on the radar right now. I'm about to release a Patreon-exclusive episode on Deleuze's 
Proust and Signs. Also, we have Accelerationism in the clip and our Halloween episode, which is Mark Fisher's The Weird and the Eerie. Please definitely drop in for that. So until then, do safe and reasonable things. Protect yourself, protect each other, and we'll see you at the Acid Horizon.